Thank you, Walter. Uh, nice change of pace in our singing. Let's uh, pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we pray that we may truly understand with a great sense of um, insight by your Holy Spirit into the greatness of your love that today you might help us see that your compassionate heart toward those who are spiritually sick is driven by your wonderful love and your heart of mercy and grace. Thank you, Father, that you are the physician who is able to heal the most sin-sick soul who is here today or any, anywhere else. And we pray that you might uh, help us to understand and to see the insights into your word this day and the hope of the gospel that's found therein. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We return back to Mark's gospel today, and I'm once again just marveling at the number of times in which Jesus uh, played the role of a controversialist. He was a person who shook up the status quo. He contradicted the prevailing assumptions that people held so uh, firmly in assuming that they knew what Jesus came to do. They assumed uh, who and they assumed how people could be made right with God. And, and Jesus oftentimes just blew the lid off of that. And a matter of fact, if you'll take your Bibles and find your way to the second chapter of Mark's Gospel, we come this morning to an incident in which Jesus, I call it, stirred up the proverbial hornet's nest. Because what he did and what he said when he approached a tax collection booth up in Galilee, this is up in the northern area, up near the Sea of Galilee, right there on the lake, he comes to this tax collecting booth occupied by a man named Levi, and what occurs in this particular incident, is nothing more than shocking. We're reading here from Mark chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, page 1187 in your pew Bible. <clears throat> Excuse me. And here we read in Mark's gospel, And Jesus went out again to the seashore, and all the multitude were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Verse 14, and as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, <clears throat> the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed Jesus. And it came about that he was reclining a table in his house. And many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many of them, and they were following him. <clears throat> and when the, the scribes and Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy, who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners. I need a drink of water here, just a second. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, before we go any further, in order to understand the text more, caref- more clearly, I would like to just take a second and introduce this whole concept of tax collection in the first century Galilee. Now, there were basically two types of taxes. Now, some of you, if you are like me years ago, I used to hear the word taxes, and it felt like listening to someone scratch a blackboard. <clears throat> but we have to face this reality as we look in this text. And so there were two types of taxes that were collected. There were what we call the fixed taxes, uh, where they used to tax property, they would tax income. These were rather straightforward, usually a percentage of, of uh, what you're growing on your land or something like that. And the other form of taxes were what they call use taxes. Uh, for example, in our society, we have um, import duties, or you would have um, tolls when you use a particular roadway. You would pay toll uh, or business license fees. These kinds of taxes were being collected by Levi. And he is in this booth in Galilee in the Capernaum area, and that's located at the edge of King uh, Art, um, Herod Antipas's territory. So it's, it's the border of his territory, so that's the place where he is going to now begin to collect his portion of the taxes. And so, interestingly enough, people like Levi, being a Jewish man, would become a, a use, tax collect, use tax collector by actually purchasing a franchise from the Roman authorities, from Herod Antipas, and he would say, I want to own this franchise to collect the taxes for this particular district. And in doing that, they were required to give a certain portion of the taxes they collected, obviously to the Roman authorities, but then there was the understanding that with this franchise, the collector could keep a portion of that which is collected over and above what was required for the Romans, keep it for himself. And so it's no surprise then that nearly every Jewish person living in that area just despised these people collecting the taxes. Because as Jews, they were collaborating with the Romans. And they were not only collect, uh, co- collaborating with the Romans, which is sort of traitorous in their minds, but they were also doing it at the expense of their own people. They were profiting and ripping off their own people as they collected these taxes. So here's Jesus, and he is approaching this tax booth where Levi is sitting. And he did that, which obviously for the people of that day, they thought this was unthinkable. He says to Levi, come and follow me. Now, if your sensibilities are not offended at reading that and thinking about what that meant, then you're not listening with first century ears. Because this is quite controversial. Jewish tax collectors were easily, as William Barclay points out, the most hated people in the Hebrew society. What's even more amazing and even more controversial is what happens even after that. If we look in the text, it says next that Levi rose, meaning he gets up out of his little booth, and he follows Jesus. 
It's amazing. In the minds of many people that day, this was again something that was preposterous. How could it possibly be? Why would Jesus even speak to such a man? And much less, why would he invite him to follow him, to become a disciple, a follower of the rabbi Jesus? And why invite such a scoundrel, a person of such lowly estate, a person who was in many ways so despised by so many people, and he's invited to come and follow Jesus? And the answer is, Jesus is a friend of sinners. In this passage of Mark's Gospel, it seems to me that it was written to uh, address several objections that were being raised in the time of Christ by people who assumed that they knew what God's outlook was regarding people who did various forms of wickedness. They assumed, whatever they assumed, was clearly mistaken. That's what this portion of the Gospel is pointing out. As we find three principles taught here, to reinforce the truth that Jesus truly is the friend of sinners. First of all, Jesus calls lawbreakers, not law keepers, to be his followers. Think about it. Every day that Levi sat in that little booth where he collected the taxes, and by the way, people have sort of brainstormed since it's right there against the lake, they're wondering if he's taxing the fish that have been caught. And so it's like a sales tax on the number of fish that are being collected and brought in. It's unclear. But anyway, he's taxing there. And he's sitting in the booth. And basically in sitting in that booth, he is publicly admitting to everybody by having that position, by buying that franchise, by being the person that's going to collect all this money from his own people on behalf of the Romans, that he would rather be rich than to be highly regarded by his fellow Jews. He did not give a rip about any of his fellow Jewish people around him. He was, made no attempt to hide the fact that his greatest loyalty was to himself. And he had his one goal in mind, and that is to increase his wealth, period. That's what he was living for. His greediness, sadly, and tragically left him friendless. It left him alienated, cut off from most of the society around him. His only quote-unquote friends, I would imagine, are those who would similarly be tax collectors and people who were outside of the realm of what was acceptable of the day and who probably lived for money only. And it was obvious that everyone who knew him and saw him in that booth there that he never made any effort whatsoever, nor did any of his friends, to follow any of the regulations of the Jewish law regarding righteous living. Didn't care, couldn't be bothered. I don't have time for that. There's only one thing I'm interested in, making money. And so Jesus invited Levi to follow him and then reclines at a meal, which means, of course, that these eating in the traditional way, propped up on one elbow with his feet away from the table, and that's the way they would eat back at that time. And so he was there eating with flagrant law breakers. Their hearts, 
of all these people gathered around this table up to that time had been fully devoted to the idols of wealth and power and self-sufficiency. And now what we see here is that everyone knew Levi's corrupt business practices. He couldn't hide it and he didn't try to hide it. But what's fascinating in this text is that Jesus knew his heart. Levi and his cohorts probably looked impressive. They were probably wearing some of the best clothes you could buy in that day. They were probably had nice big fancy rings on their fingers. They probably wore the best of sandals that you could buy at the time. But deep down in his heart, in the hearts of these other people, there was an obviously sense of dissatisfaction. It wasn't enough. And I'm wondering if, could it be that Levi sensed this being cut off, his loneliness, his sense of not being connected to other people in a significant way, not being connected with the God who made him, the guilt that was perhaps plaguing at his conscience, knowing that he'd ripped off all of these poor folk, these widows and people who couldn't afford these taxes? Did they combine to make him feel as though he was ready at some point to leave this wretched life of tax collecting? Could it be that he yearned to be liberated from this idea of wealth being his taskmaster, demanding that he constantly force these people to give him money and more money and more money? Well, here's Jesus who knew all about him, and yet Jesus loved him anyway. And Jesus calls him. He calls him not to remain in that kind of sin and life of degradation. He calls him to follow him. So this is one of the important understandings of what Jesus is doing here. He calls him to turn his back on his life of enslaving sin. And Jesus calls him to repent. Look at verse 17. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Indeed, when you think about this repentance that Jesus is mentioning here, it's interesting that when you look at, to compare the passage in Luke's gospel to the same account of Levi being called to follow Jesus, we read that, that Levi left everything behind and rose up and began to follow Jesus. You see, Jesus calls Levi to give up all of his dishonest financial dealings. As a matter of fact, one commentator in reflecting on this text of Scripture reminded us that repentance is more than just feeling regret over our past sins. True repentance involves turning away from our past sins. It involves sorrowing over sin to the point where it leads us to do an about-face. Having been doing these things, acting this way, having certain longings, now we're going to go in this direction because we, we are so mournful over how that was so wrong and so offensive. If Levi truly mourned over his sins, then the logical understanding would be that his tax-collecting days would be over. No more of this easy wealth for him. Jesus called him to follow him on his terms. 
And every sinner must surrender to Jesus' authority, to Jesus' commands. And we must personally yield our lives to the rule and reign of Christ. That's why the gospel always begins with repent and believe. So I find it interesting that Levi did not hide his transgressions. Everyone knew the idols of his heart. And everyone knew what he really lived for. He made no pretense of being better than he really was. He just sort of, it was out there on his shirt sleeve. I am a tax collector. Give me your money. I don't care about anything. Just give me your money. He owned his own sin, if you will. And as I've thought about that, I've thought, what a contrast to so many of us who are masters at hiding our sin. We're quite skilled. We've developed all sorts of strategies to make people think that we're really better than we actually are. I mean, it's one thing for Matthew to sit in his little tax booth and everybody knows, okay, we know what that guy's all about. But suppose you were to sit in a booth somewhere and above it is a screen that reveals what's going on in your thought life the last 24 hours. Or if your screen of your life tells about what you've been saying and talking about or writing online for the last two weeks or three weeks of your life. There are many things about us. We don't want people to know the full story of who we truly are. We mask our true motivations. We sort of hide our true desires. And thereby we avoid giving any kind of complete authenticity about who we really are. And the danger is for those of us who see the Levi's of the world and we put them so easily into another category. That's them, but this is me and I'm gathered with those of us who are different from them. The danger of that is, is that if we distinguish ourselves from the quote-unquote serious sinners, then we are left to be rather prone to adopting, if you will, an attitude of pride that looks down on other people and ultimately hypocrisy. Because we are also sinners just like they are sinners. They have one type and brand of sin. We have another type and brand of sin. But if we're lawbreakers, we're all lawbreakers. All of us need a Savior just as much as Levi needed a Savior. Whether you're members of the Mafia, whether we're terrorists, or whether you're a corrupt business dealer, or whether you're a person that harbors hatred in your heart, or a person who gossips, or a person who uses the Lord's name in vain, or a person who indeed uh, struggles to tell the truth. I had opportunity this past week to attend the showing of a very powerful film called Gosnell. Its full name is Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. It's a true story. It's, a, it's based on facts that are very carefully recounted. It's really a story about the trial of this abortion doctor in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's not a gory movie, not in any way, but it reveals some of the reprehensibly horrible conditions in this particular man's office in his clinic and it reveals the the law um, authorities and how they sought to 
hold him and bring him to justice regarding some of the horrific things that he did in that clinic. And again, it's, it's very accurate to what actually happened, and the acting is good, the writing is good. It's a powerful film. But as you get up out of the film, you say to yourself, oh, finally the lid is taken off of what really goes on, on in, in, the, in the world of abortion. But the danger I found myself facing as I left that movie and I thought there were many things that were going through my heart and mind was that I began to see myself as different than this gentleman because he is truly, he did some horrifically evil things and he is now in prison, serving a life in prison. And the danger is that we tend to somehow take a person like that, put him on a pedestal and say, now that was evil. And it is. But what goes on in my heart and what I think about and what I long for is just as evil as what he's done in the eyes of God. So the point here I want to make in this text is that <laughs> Levi had no problem admitting he was a lawbreaker. He owned the fact that he was a transgressor. His challenge was to forsake that and to follow Jesus. Perhaps our greatest challenge is to admit and to take ownership of the fact that we are serious lawbreakers. That we defy the lordship of Christ, wanting to do our own way time after time and time again, and being willing to forsake our own ways and to submit ourselves to Christ, realize that we need him to save us and continue to save us. We need Jesus' pardon as much as Levi and all of his quote-unquote friends. Well, the second thing I wanted to think about in this text is that Jesus forgives sinners, not the self-righteous. Most commentators, if you are looking at verse 15 and they see this scene of a, a meal being shared together, understand that likely it's Levi, the host here. He has a very, I'm sure, rather elaborate, uh, impressive, uh, well-provided-for uh, home. And so he's invited his notorious friends, quote-unquote, to join him, and he's now got Jesus with him, and so all the disciples are sort of sitting around watching what's going on here. And Jesus has been invited because there's a celebration of a new beginning that has just happened here, a new beginning in life. But those who observed this new beginning were again shocked. They were flabbergasted. They couldn't see it as something good. They saw it as something that was, again, controversial, and how was it that Jesus was eating with this dishonest tax collector, which everybody, of course, had many reasons to hate, and that they would somehow understand the sense of outrage because in their minds, for you to sit down and share a meal like that, to actually partake of food in the context of this uh, being introduced, uh, being invited into that kind of a, uh, a meal, is that the one with whom you shared the meal it was assumed that you were on good terms with that person. That there was some sort of relational intimacy. There's closeness here that is, in, 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 that is present, and that's why you're there in this meal. In other words, they would never understand anyone in the Near East to think of eating with their enemies. It, it just didn't happen. Those of whom you're, you're at odds, you don't sit down and share a meal together because that's just phony baloney. And so when Jesus shares the meal with Levi, he is signaling to everyone 
that He has extended a gracious gift of forgiveness to Levi and to all those who similarly had chosen to follow Christ. And that this shared meal signified that Jesus was more than willing to forgive those, whoever it is, Levi and all of his so-called friends, anyone who is sorrowfully, as a sinner, repenting and coming to Christ in faith. So Jesus' forgiveness here not includes, includes this wonderful concept of fellowship, that they are now enjoying this fellowship. He's, he's not embarrassed. He's not uh, sort of filled with shame in dealing with Jesus. There's a sense in which Jesus is so pleased and celebrating the wonder of, of this change now and, uh, in Levi's life. And he's enjoying time with Christ, talking to him, enjoying his company. Along with that, there is also an amazing provision here for Levi that's implied in the text is that there's a new identity. At some point, Levi's name is changed. His name Levi, given to him at birth, mentions we understand him to be a member of the probably the Levite a tribe. It, the name literally means joined or attached. And probably the understanding would be that they are joined or attached to a, a full sense of devotion to the Lord, to serve Him, to give their life in undivided service to Christ. That's what the Levites did. But here is Levi with the name that meant attached and joined, joined to his money, joined to his, wor- his riches, joined to his greed. That's what people associated with him as a traitor, corruption. But that name now is going to be replaced Levi becomes Matthew, and Matthew's name means gift of the Lord. What a difference. And so later in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 3, just turn the page there, verse 18, where the apostles are listed, you don't find the name Levi, you find the name Matthew, the gift of the Lord. Levi is no longer to be known as a man who is attached to to this lifelong reputation of being a greedy extortionist. He's given a new name. He's given a new beginning. He is given a new life as a follower of Christ. The same happened in Simon's life. The same happened in Saul's life. My friend, it can happen in your life. You don't need a new name. We just need a new identity. We need to be known as a child of God. And identity is that which is given to us. We do not assume our identity. It is not something we just choose. It is something that's given to us. Given to us by Christ. And I find it amazing that that is repeated in Scripture time and time again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Paul, in reflecting upon the idea of a new identity, reflected on the wonders of realizing that God, by His grace, takes us dead in our sins, makes us alive in Christ. He makes us into this new person. He calls us then at some point in Ephesians 2.10 that we are His handiwork. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus so that we might show to other people because of the grace shown to us, now we live in a new way in which we are now people who enjoy doing good works. I love the illustration that Kent Hughes 
tells as he thinks about what this idea of having this new identity for Levi, a new identity for you and me. He tells the story of, true story of centuries ago, a number of workmen were seen dragging this large block of marble in the city of Florence, Italy. And in making it situated right there into the middle of the uh, courtyard near this cathedral, it had been quarried out of this famous place where they get all this great marble in Italy. And, and uh, the intention was to make, someone was going to take it and make it into this great statue of an Old Testament saint somewhere, prophet probably. But it contained imperfections. And so the, one of the greatest sculptors said, nope, I'm not using that one. It's got too many uh, uh, things about it that make it such it's not to be used. And so it laid there in the cathedral yard, a useless block. Time went by, and then another sculptor caught sight of this flawed block. And as he examined it, he thought carefully about how it could be used. And so in his mind, he chose to say, I am going to take, I'll claim this block, and I'm going to create something of immense beauty with it and sculpt it. And so he spent two years, not two months, two years, very carefully fashioning and crafting that block of discarded marble into a work of art. And finally, in January of 1504, the work of art was finally unveiled and publicly revealed. And it was met with a chorus of praise. Everyone who saw it was so impressed because they agreed, this indeed is a masterpiece. The succeeding centuries have confirmed that judgment and assessment of that block of rejected marble. It became Michelangelo's David. That great statue, one of the greatest works of art the world has ever known. What's the point here? The point is the grace of God chooses imperfect, corrupt sinners like you and me, and by His grace, begins a work by which he sanctifies us, by which he chips away, and which he carves at us little by little, resulting in, in a lifetime of sanctifying us, and then we enjoy the being in the privilege status of being someone who is the handiwork of God. No longer discarded, no longer useless, no longer just absorbed in our own life, but now enjoying God, serving God, and making a difference for Christ and His kingdom. What a blessing. And that's what He's given to Levi. That's what He gives to all who come to Him, repent and in faith. May I point out a third insight into this text that Jesus also heals the sin sick, not the healthy. Again, the response of so many who were familiar with Old Testament teaching, they were rather incredulous that Jesus would have such a close association with the likes of some of these individuals who were known to be so unclean and unlawful. And Jesus defends the appropriateness of his presence there as he talks there in verse 17 about his presence among them. And he uses the analogy of a doctor and people who are sick. Now, you would expect a medical doctor to be wearing his white 
medical jacket like they always wear at Stony Brook Hospital. You see all these doctors walking around in their white uh, doctor's jackets. You wouldn't expect to see a medical doctor spend all of his time doing the rounds in a gymnasium where people are working out, where healthy people are just getting exercise and trying to stay healthy. You wouldn't expect to see doctors there. You expect to see physicians in hospitals. You expect them to see in doctor offices where they're seeing sick people, patients who have problems with their physical health. And so Jesus is a physician who cares about those who are suffering the ravages of sin. And we ought not be surprised that Jesus would spend time among those who were likely rude, who likely used rather coarse or foul language. That Jesus would be among those who probably drank to excess or others who were sleeping around. You see, Jesus did not avoid people who were living lives of impurity, who were living lives of flagrant sins. I wonder if some of us pride ourselves on how much distance we can keep from people like that. Do we assume that the gospel has no power to cure the most wicked heart? Do we assume the gospel has no power to liberate those who have an addicted heart? Do we assume the, the gospel has no power to heal the proudest heart? Well, Jesus had no problem with seeing them, spending time with them, and calling them out of that life into a life to follow him. Matter of fact, the only time I can remember in the New Testament that Jesus' followers are commanded to avoid someone who is living in a sinful lifestyle is when that person is a member of a local church and who has made a profession of faith and to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We are told to cut off fellowship with that person and not to continue on as if everything is just fine and honky-dory. Otherwise, we are to be engaged in reaching and being, uh, being open to involvement in the lives of people who clearly need Christ. And Jesus made a conscious effort to reach those who would never had been ever desired to go to the local temple or, or synagogue, and they, nor would they ever have been allowed or permitted in the temple or synagogue. But Jesus made a point to reach them. And some in society today would say they're all too welcoming of everybody. The danger is that our society has now swung in some spheres to the point which they are now offering what I call is spiritual malpractice, particularly among some of the liberal mainline denominations. Because if you were to attend a mainline denomination, many churches today, not all perhaps, but many, they would practice what I would call worldly pseudo-compassion. Pseudo-compassion in which they would minimize the offensiveness of sin before a holy God in the eyes of God. They would refuse to diagnose people with any kind of biblical accuracy. Tragically, they would assure people that they're not really sick at all. That they would refuse to pinpoint sin as a serious, deadly problem 
that it really is. Rather than speaking the truth in love, they would and, and give us a clear, accurate, damning picture about, I'm sorry, a picture about the damning nature of sin, helping us understand that sin is indeed leading you away and cutting you off from the God who made you and who loves you. Many of those liberal churches today are going to insist that we adopt the world's values, that we emphasize self-esteem, that we emphasize the fact that we are to be self-actualized, that we are to self-identify, and so we just claim whoever we want to be. Many of these churches have bought into all this kind of terrible, I call it spiritual malpractice. And they have totally forsaken proclaiming the simple but essential gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and buried and raised again from the dead. So it's only the cross of Christ in the sin-sick, can a sin-sick soul find the powerful medicine of healing. And those who are sin-sick can find a full and complete cure from the terminal disease of sin. The cure of the gospel starts with cleansing our conscience and giving us that wonderful lifting of the burden of removing from us the penalty of sin, all sin. And then the gospel continues to act as a powerful incentive and working within us to free us from the the power of sin, the fact that we keep on living a life of rebellion, it gospel gives us a power to live a new life here and now through the Holy Spirit. And then the gospel assures us of the promise someday of having completely eradicating the presence of sin in our lives. This is what the gospel offers to us. And if that is true, my friend, how much more compassion should we have on those around us who still need that cure? Jesus sent us to make known that cure for the sinful heart of people that we know all around us. It is to be found in none other than Christ, the friend of sinners, crucified and raised from the dead. Let's pray. Our Father, as we bow before you today, how we thank you for the wondrous love of Christ who sees us at our worst. And while we were enemies, dead in our sins, Christ died for us. How we thank you, Lord, that you have given us the only cure for our sin-sick souls. It is Christ in the gospel. Lord, I pray today that you would open our eyes to different forms in which we ourselves minimize or hide our sin rather than freely admitting it, confessing our sins to each other and being healed. Lord, many of us live lives in which we somehow think we're beyond all that or want people to think we're beyond sinning. I pray that you would help us to be much more people of integrity, of humble honesty, admitting that we still need a Savior to help us with the struggle of sin in our hearts. Help us, Father, to not see ourselves into a different category than other people. Help us to see that the foot, the ground at the base of the cross is level. We all need a Savior. And we pray that you would help us, Father, to have a greater heart of compassion for those who need a Savior. 
that we might be emboldened and uh, empowered with your love and compassion to continually point others to Christ. And Lord, would you call many a Levi in today's world to follow you and to cause us all to be filled with more amazement and wonder at your amazing grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.